Good evening. We are Todd and Linda Erickson, and we are reading from the book of John, first chapter, verses 15 through 18. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I feel loneliness in my chest. Just a heavy weight, weight on your back. My career has isolated me. I don't have a partner. I don't have kids. Right after I got married, people just fell away. As a single parent, and there I are... retired. My greatest fear is dying alone. It's a doozy loneliness. It's a bad one. The feelings of loneliness and isolation that I feel stem from losing my dad to suicide at 12 years old. I feel like I've always felt lonely. What did I do to like run everybody else away? I feel like I just something that makes people scatter. I feel like I, if I don't try to be successful, I'll always regret not having tried. My loneliness is, is ends up kind of being my punishment. Does everybody feel like this? There must be something wrong with me. Surrounded by people, but yet you're still feeling like you're not even around anybody. I'm at this wedding and, you know, kind of like on reflex, I open up my phone, I pull up a dating app and I start swiping and then I look around and there's just like so many people around me laughing and having a good time, just being loving with each other. Yeah, it was a moment of like feeling deep loneliness. You might try to do everything possible to find a life partner, but you might be single forever. People cannot imagine that, that you'd be so lonely, that you would dread right Thanksgiving and thinking like, gosh, I hope somebody invites me. As a single parent, I feel like it's the most important and biggest thing I will ever do in life. And I just keep it to myself because there's no one to share it with. I decided deliberately not to have children while all my close friends decided the opposite. And as they were focusing more and more of their time on family life, I became deprioritized. I would have never told you that I would work this many hours as I do, and, and I wouldn't have a group of friends surrounding me. When my spouse comes home, and she just kind of goes off into her corner, and she's the first person I want to talk to, and I'm the last person she wants to talk to. I've been a single mom for almost 14 years and I just sometimes feel like I want someone to reach out to me and take care of me. Friends don't want to hear about how lonely I am. It's just too much burden to put on. You don't want to I add to their burden, burden on other people. I've been trying to go to lunch with a colleague of mine on my campus for eight years and it still hasn't happened. I thought I was building a family that was going to be close and connected and doing things together. And, and that hasn't happened. I was important, right? I mattered to people. I thought I did. And then I retired. And the isolation was deafening. Try to remember to pick up the phone you have no idea how that unexpected phone call can change their day. 
it's the children saying, Dad, I love you, and how are you? And it's also a good friend saying, Bob, I don't like the sound of your voice. I'm coming over. We're going to talk. If I can get myself to pick up the phone and call somebody, somebody else will say, you know, I'm feeling exactly the same way. And then, poof, you're part of the human race again. Well, good evening and Merry Christmas. My name's Chaz. I know that was not the most chipper uh, introduction to a Christmas homily, but it was honest, wasn't it? And it's hard to admit that, isn't it? I really appreciate them. Uh, but if you've been around here or part of this church, that's not the first time we've talked about this growing problem of loneliness. It's an epidemic, and it's not just here. Even in the UK, the parliament appointed a minister of loneliness. We have a growing loneliness problem, and statistics continue to show. There's all kinds of factors. Our lives are really busy. Some of you are single parenting. Some of you have lost a spouse. You've got family across the world. You've got, just, you've got a, four kids you've got to take to different things, and it's hard to keep up, isn't it? But there are a couple things I think that really stood out that are a little underneath that. When I heard the young woman say this, I feel like loneliness is punishment for wanting success. You realize there's something underneath all of that, and you ask, you say, how do, how do we get there? We've all been there. <laughs> We've all been there. And the main thing that we want to look at and say is, what's happened to us? And part of it is this. You know that really since we were in preschool, one of the things we have been told this over and over again, as your parents gave birth to you, but it's really up to you the rest of your life to rebirth yourself. It's up to you to find an identity. It's to you to find a dream, to chase a dream and go do it. And so what happens as we grow up is this thing, every one of us has been through it. You get to this point in life and you say, but, but then who am I if I'm not successful? Who am I if my children aren't successful? Who am I if I don't get married? And we make choices for those things, and then we find ourselves scarily alone. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, you know, Christmas is this warm, fuzzy thing, and it is, and I love some Hallmark movies myself every now and then, but it's warm and fuzzy, and it's this time of year you say, well, you know, we can all do better. In fact, this is a late addition to the sermon, but I jogged past this sign this morning. It said, believe there is good in the world. That's the sin of modern Christmas. In fact, be the good, but please don't let your dog do this in my yard, okay? In fact, that's the way you can be good, but, you know, it's not that bad, is it? If I mean, if we could just stop this, but it's not all that bad. We just need to be a little better, but we've been looking at the introduction to the Gospel of John through Advent, for those who've been here, and John misses all the fuzzies. There's no shepherds in the field in his introduction to the Gospel. There's no wise men, not even a baby lying in a manger. Instead, John jumps right to the chest and says, I want to tell you what all these details mean, and it means this, you're not alone. We're not alone. And we were never meant to be. In fact, he begins his gospel with these words, in the beginning. And we've heard that somewhere else in the Bible, right? Right there in the beginning, in Genesis 1. 
John sees Jesus Christ coming to earth, literally, as a second creation event. Because something was lost in the Garden of Eden. God once walked with human flesh, and it was the most normal of things. And when Jesus came in the flesh, he said, you know what I know? I want, you want to know what Christmas means? Jesus Christ is going all the way to take us home. He's bringing back Eden. That is his goal. That's why he came to earth. So I'm going to keep it simple because my neighbors are probably waiting for us to get home for our party. And many of you have kids on your laps. So we'll just take about a brief minute and just look at one simple thing. What does it look like to see God through the flesh? Now, uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and you just heard it in our text, what Todd just read, uh, a name appears in the beginning of John's gospel, and it's John the Baptist. It's not just here, but it's earlier, I think, in verse 7. John the Baptist. And that's curious. Like, this is the gospel about Jesus. Why is John the Baptist getting so much airtime? Because John's a very interesting figure. He was a very influential figure, but, you know, people flocked to him in the deserts. I get that he had some influence. The religious leaders, they, they had him on his radar. They didn't like him. Certainly King Herod and his wife in particular did not like him. So he had some influence. But it's interesting, John the Apostle is quoting John the Baptist, mentioning about Jesus, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's John the Baptist said that earlier. He's saying Jesus came before me, and you have to ask yourself, why is that even necessary in the beginning of this gospel? And I'll tell you why. Because in the first century, People didn't know who was more influential, Jesus or John the Baptist. And that's not a very flattering look about Jesus because, you know, John the Baptist was a man who wore camel's hair for clothing, lived in the desert, ate locusts, okay? And if he was at your party tonight, you'd just brace yourself every time he spoke, you know? Very brash, very bold. And yet people had their doubts. Who's the more important figure here? And it's not just that John the Apostle's audience had their doubts. This is amazing. The Gospels are very self-effacing. You know, John the Baptist had his doubts. He's in prison, and he literally just sends his disciples to go find Jesus, and he has a very simple and very honest question, and he wants to ask. And it's this. Are you really the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who has come, or, or should we look for somebody else? And, you know, Jesus answers them, and he's like, you know, okay, well, let me help you with that. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news, preach to him. Does that help you, John? But actually, I'm not sure John even needed to hear that from Jesus when Jesus replied to him. Because John the Baptist heard all these reports himself. He knew what was going on. And John the Baptist is more entwined with the story of Jesus than anybody. He was his cousin. And John the Baptist, okay, the man who's asking that question, are you the one, literally baptized Jesus of Nazareth, and heaven opened up, and the voice of God spoke and said, this is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And yet John is doubting. Why? You have to ask yourself this question. Jesus finishes that statement and he says, and blesses the one who's not offended by me. But wait a second. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I don't necessarily find that offensive. 
What's so offensive here? The offense is this. The offense isn't that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. But he also said, (laughs) I'm fully human too. I'm God in the flesh. I've come. I've come. And you know... The average skeptic then had issues with that. See, the average skeptic today, and I know there's probably a lot in here tonight, you know, if, it was, if I was to ask you, what do you think about Jesus, honestly? Do you think he was a human being? You'd probably say, yeah. Historically, I believe there was a Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't a myth, mythological figure. He probably lived in Palestine in the first century. But then when I ask you and say, do you think he was God? You would probably might say, <laughs> not sure about that. I don't really believe in that kind of stuff. But see, in the first century, people believed that gods could come to earth. The Greeks believed this. Zeus came. These gods came. Sometimes they bore children. (laughs) Crazy stuff, right? But human? Yeah, if the average skeptic in the first century, was he human? No way. Because a god can't do that. Come like that and so low to to a body, a human body. See, societies for centuries have had a low view of the human body until Christianity came. And even the religious people, you know, the Jews, they're upset, not just because Jesus is claiming to be God, but notice what they say. You a mere man. You a mere man. They thought God would come, their Messiah, this man and unparalleled strength with an enemy to smite their political enemies and restore their country and get the life they've always wanted back. See, what we have here, we've got Greeks, we've got Jews, John the Baptist himself and John the Apostle's audience dealing with these doubts. And what they're doubting is this, how could, the God, how could God come to earth and then looked like a man who had, quote, no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, despised. Nobody imagined that God came that when he got cut that he'd actually bleed. And then when he got sad, he would cry. Then when he got hot, he would sweat. When he got cold, he would shiver. When he got tired, he would sleep. That he would need to go to solitary places to pray and go to solitary places to go to the bathroom. That he would get hangry when his blood sugar level dropped. That he lost teeth as a child, brushed them as an adult to keep them. That he would go through puberty. Go through puberty. And not only that, attract a group of people like the lame, the poor, the uninfluential, political enemies, children, prostitutes. See, the problem is this. We as a culture believe it really comes down to us, doesn't it? The individual self. But the more and more we go along in that narrative and saying, you know, I've got to create my own identity. I've got to shine it on myself. More and more we're getting lonely and learner because we're going out into the world and we're saying, but you know what? I'm so unique. Who really understands me? 
who really gets me. I'm very different from everybody else. And the writer of Hebrews speaks about this to us. And he says, you know what we have? In Christ coming to earth, he understands you. Every aspect about you and I. Nobody in the first century understood the poor, the lame, or even women until he came. T.S. Eliot uh, wrote, he's a great poet and um, wrote some other short stories. Uh, but one of the themes about his writings was always this. He always wrote about alienation. He wrote a lot about loneliness about 100 years ago. And um, right after he converted to Christianity, 1927, he wrote a poem titled The Journey of the Magi. And it's very interesting. And um, it's, it's, it's a poem told from the perspective of one of the Magi, okay? And the Magi, before they leave, they're living in a world that keeps changing. And they're filled, their lives seem to be filled with loneliness and a lot of regret. And they're living with this and they don't know what to do about it, okay? But all of a sudden they find themselves on a journey and they're not liking the journey either. It's cold. It's, it's the shortest days of the year. The camel's feet are getting tired. Literally, quote, they find themselves sleeping in snatches with voices singing in our ears saying this was all folly. And then they arrive to a manger scene and they see this baby and they ask this question. Were we led all that way for birth or death? Were we brought here just to almost die? We brought here for just birth, this unimpressive baby, but T.S. Eliot was brilliant in the way he did this. His answer to that question was yes. We were, they were brought here and we were brought here for our birth and his death. See, one of the interesting things you have throughout the Old Testament is this, you know, this constant phrase over and over again. No man may see me. No man may see me and live, you know? Now, you know, Moses did see God, and some of the elders did, and it's in Exodus. You can read about it. Uh, and he saw him. He saw him with his physical eyes, okay? But what all the writers are saying is nobody can see God in all his fullness, all his beauty, in a way that's hard to understand, that somehow the human eye could not literally look at the beauty and glory and majesty and holiness of God. It would somehow shut down all our senses. Well, what did God do to solve that? What did he do? He gave us a man who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, despised and rejected. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, despised, so that he could put his glory in us. You know, Jesus coming to earth, he stooped low when he went to a manger, but see, his track, his trajectory from there is stooping lower all the way to the cross. For those here who battle and feel lonely, one of the greatest fears all of us have is that. And in our commitment to expressive individualism, we're, we don't want to be ordinary. We want to be seen. We want people to see us, affirm us, love us, 
But one of our greatest fears is if you see it, you'll reject me. That you'll find that I wasn't enough. That I'm not impressive enough. But what all this is saying, but Jesus coming to, as a human being, that even made people doubt, like John the Baptist, is that Jesus sees us. Every bit of us. And in the incarnation, what Jesus sees in all of us is he's seen us absolutely at our worst. The parts of us that we don't want anybody to see, the parts of us we don't, want any, we don't even want ourselves to know about. And he sees every single bit of that. And what he has done is said, you, I'm going to give you my identity, my glory, and I'm going to put it in you. Now, a lot of you in this room may not know who this man is because there's a lot of strangers here tonight. But that's a man who's been a part of our church for at least five years. His name's Paul Mason. And I saw that picture the first time this week uh, on Monday. And I thought, wow, I didn't know he was a doctor in General Hospital. Wow, that's an amazing, <laughs> amazing temples right there. I think you missed your calling. Um, but if you don't know, uh, Paul, Paul passed away on Monday. And I was there just maybe three hours before, that ha- before he passed. And, and I was watching him slip away physically, you know. And I saw that picture, and I'm looking at him as he's slipping away. And there was this part of me that said, wow, I never knew that, Paul. I never knew that. Younger, (laughs) vibrant. I mean, he's 55, and look how great he looked. Free from the ravages of cancer. But when Paul entered the kingdom of God because of what Jesus Christ has done, he was introduced to Jesus face to face and now lives forever. And in a sense, Paul was actually introduced to a Paul he never knew. Younger and vibrant and full and free from the ravages of sin and death forever. But he is now the finished masterpiece of the Savior he bet his life on, who came here. The Paul he was always meant to be. But when the family, I met with them later in the week to, to plan services coming on Wednesday, and one of them asked as I was getting ready to leave, was this question was, do you have any words of wisdom for us? And I said a couple things um, about being present at the moment and that, you know, the church, we're going to take care of you. But as I've reflected on that question, I not only have more for them, but, but for all of us facing anything like this. And it's this. Often when we put together services for believers, we earnestly do our best to ensure that Jesus is honored. Okay. We want Jesus to get center stage while we pay our respects. We want to worship Jesus and not the, pers- the person. And I get that. I have great sympathy for that sentiment. But I will say this. I've walked in on Paul at least twice at Carolina Village in the, going to the bathroom. Uh, Paul could be very direct. He'd let me know when he didn't like a sermon, okay? I'm not tempted to worship Paul, okay? But... Can I say this? The best way we can worship Jesus is to honor the people that he has put his glory in and not to stop short at all in celebrating the glory of God that was in him. And many of us here in this room, we his friends, we caught just mere glimpses of this glorious man he is now in that forever kingdom. But even those glimpses were enough for us to rejoice in the man that God gave to us. 
the man whose radiant character reminded us that Jesus did more than tabernacle on this earth. He made his home in his heart as he has many in this room. I'll close with this. You know, there's a final line in Hark the Herald Angels I didn't even know about until this week. And it goes like this. Come, desires of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now face, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, amen.